You are listening to the Today I Found Out podcast, where each weekday we provide an interesting story that is going to feed your brain. You can read more great articles like this by going to todayifoundout.com. Hello and welcome to episode 290 of the Daily Knowledge Podcast from todayifoundout.com. In the episode today, you're going to learn about the average age of marriage for women throughout history. And in the bonus facts section, you're going to learn a bit about the real divorce rate in the United States. After today's article, we're going to have a brief word from our wonderful sponsor, downpour.com. And after that, we're going to give you a bonus why article about why the toilet is called the John. So let's just get started with today's show. Today, in many cultures, it is considered immoral to have a young teenage girl get married to a much older man. However, there is a popular perception that in the not-too-distant past, this was a widespread practice. So, is there any truth to this? In the Western world, and generally speaking, before Imperial Rome, girls were deemed sufficiently mature for marriage and sex when they first started menstruation, and boys, by the way, when they developed pubic hair. Marriage was relatively unregulated by the state then, and instead was seen as a private family matter, so it is presumed these boundaries were flexible. The Roman emperors began to take matters in hand, beginning with Caesar Augustus's marriage laws, 18 BC and 9 AD. He ordered that no betrothal should be valid if the man did not marry within two years of such betrothal, and that the girl must in every case be at least ten years old at her betrothal. Girls are held to have reached the marriageable age on the completion of twelve full years. By the end of the empire, the age of consent for girls had been well settled, as the official age for reaching puberty was set at twelve. Fast forward to medieval marriage. During this time, the Catholic Church had rules for just about everything, and one of its most authoritative texts was the Decretum Gratiani. Written by the jurist Johannes Gratian in the 12th century, it set a minimum age for betrothal, not necessarily marriage, at seven years for boys and girls, and the lawful age for a woman to consent to marriage, and as they called it, carnal intercourse, at 12, although certain unusual circumstances would render marriages at younger ages valid as well. Gratian was followed by others, including Hostiensis, Henricus de Segusio, who opined that a young woman's physical development, not her age, should determine whether she was ready for marriage. This all might lead you to believe that the popular idea that in the Western world it was common for girls of this era to get married is correct. However, recent scholarship indicates that although medieval marriages could legally occur at ages as young as 12, that might not have been the norm. As stated in Kim Phillips' book, Medieval Maidens, Young Women and Gender in England, While marriages at very young ages could, and sometimes did, take place, particularly for girls of high social status, it would be a mistake to see marriage below or around the age of puberty as the norm even for young noblewomen. Emerging evidence is eroding the stereotype, with work on low and lower middle class women showing that a large proportion of the sample marries between the ages of 18 and 22, and showing that urban girls in Yorkshire tended to marry in their early to mid-twenties and rural girls in their late teens to early 20s. So what about later? A study performed by the National Bureau of Economic Research, NBER, on marriage in North America and Western Europe mirrors the findings of the Yorkshire researchers. The NBER found that young women from the 17th through 19th centuries were not all that young when they got married. 
For example, in Massachusetts records dating from 1652 to 1800 demonstrate that the mean age of first marriage for ladies was between 19.5 and 22.5 years, and records for other colonies reflect similar ages. In fact, the average age of the first marriage for all of the colonies was 19.8 before 1700, 21.2 during the early 18th century, and 22.7 during the late 18th century. This is consistent with data gathered in England, France, and Germany that puts the average mean age of first marriage for women at 25.1 from 1750 to 1799 and 25.7 from 1800 to 1849. Maintaining the trend, by the end of the 19th century, the median age when women were first getting married was between 22 and 24 years old, and this tendency continued into the 1940s. In fact, the lowest median age of first marriage since the early 1700s was had by the baby boom generation, where the age dropped to 20.5 years in 1950. What about today? As of 2010, the median age of first marriage for women was 26.1, 28.2 for men, although research demonstrates that marriage is most often delayed rather than foregone, and although they may wait a while, more than 90% of women will eventually marry. And now for today's bonus facts. While you'll often read that there is a 50-52% to 52% chance of any given marriage ending in divorce, this isn't quite accurate, or at least it doesn't tell the whole story. It only looks at the raw figures of marriages each year versus the number of divorces. This doesn't take into account repeat divorcees, which skew the totals in any given year. In fact, 67% of second marriages and 73% of third marriages end in divorce. The average divorce rate for first marriages is only about 41% in the United States, and these divorce figures have been declining significantly in the last few decades. It should also be noted that marriages where both partners have a college degree only end in divorce about 25% of the time. Bonus fact 2. While it wasn't the norm, Edgar Allan Poe married his first cousin, Virginia Clem, when he was 26 and she was 13. She died 11 years later, inspiring some of his more famous poems, such as The Raven and Annabel Lee. A friend of Poe's, Charles Burr, wrote, Many times after the death of his beloved wife, he was found at the dead hour of a winter night, sitting beside her tomb almost frozen in the snow. So this episode is brought to you by Downpour.com. Downpour is a website that provides DRM-free audiobooks and rentals for up to 70% off the regular price. And basically, you can borrow these books for 30 to 60 days, but you can extend it if you need to. Anyway, it's a great service. You can download books, you can play them offline. And if you are interested in the sort of subject we talked about in today's episode, kind of statistics that are maybe not as correct as you think, I'd recommend you check out a book called Freakonomics on Downpour.com. It's really well well read. It's read by the author and it deals with all sorts of, uh, of things that you might think are true but, but aren't actually true, like the age of marriage throughout history. So I'd definitely head over to downpour.com and check that out. And it's, it's, a, it's a book of good length as well. And if you enter the offer code daily, you're going to get that book for just $3.95, which is an absolute steal considering how long and entertaining it is. So great audiobooks, $3.95 if you use the promo code daily on checkout. So just go to downpour.com and grab one of their audiobooks today. All right, now let's get back to our Bonus Why article. Why the Toilet is Called a John The term is thought to derive from Sir John Harrington, or at the least to have been popularized due to Harrington. There are a few references to the toilet being called Cousin John, as well as many references to it being called Jake and other such generic names before Harrington was born. 
but it is generally agreed that why we now call it John is because of Harrington, and not from the old Cousin John. Sir John Harrington lived in the 16th and early 17th centuries. Harrington was one of the 102 godchildren of Queen Elizabeth I, known as the saucy godson for his proclivity to write somewhat risque poetry and other such things, which often got him banished from England, only to be allowed to return again sometime later. Along with writing several notable works, Harrington also devised one of Britain's first flushing toilets, which he called the Ajax. The name derived from the term jakes, which was a slang term for what we now call a toilet. Shortly thereafter, Harrington wrote one of his more famous and popular works, titled A New Discourse Upon a Stale Subject, The Metamorphosis of Ajax. This, on the surface, was about his new invention, but more to the point was a political allegory on the stercus, excrement that was poisoning the state. The book itself got banished from the court for a time due to its allusions to the Earl of Leicester. However, the actual flushing toilet device itself was real and was installed in his home, and later one was made for the Queen around 1576. The device worked by pulling a cord that would allow water to rush in from the water closet which would flush away the waste. Although Harrington wasn't by any means the first to invent a flushing toilet, there are references to flushing toilets going all the way back to around 2600 BC, his invention was an innovation in Britain at the time, and it was commonly thought that he was the inventor of the flushing toilet, which is why, even today, it is sometimes called a John. You just listened to an episode of the Today I Found Out Daily podcast. Tune in every weekday for another great episode or find more articles at todayifoundout.com.